Calling all birders. Join us from May 18th to the 21st, 2023 for the Great Salt Lake Bird Festival. Don't miss the premier event for both amateur and seasoned bird watchers. Enjoy workshops, keynote presentations, and over 200 species of birds. Start planning your trip by visiting greatsaltlakebirdfest.com. That's greatsaltlakebirdfest.com. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am Nate Swick. If you remember way back to 2022, I mentioned that I was in Costa Rica with my family for the winter break. I meant to talk a little bit about that trip here. I have a couple of recommendations, a couple of thoughts. If you're traveling down that way, I, I would have touched on it last week, but you know, bird of the year stuff was pressing. Hello, belted kingfisher. So let, let's go way back to the end of December. I'm heading to Costa Rica with my non-birding but enthusiastic about nature family. And people have asked, you know, how do you go to a place that's known for birding with a non-birding family? And and I've been to Costa Rica before a couple times, so I'd seen a lot of the things I wanted to see there. And in retrospect, that's probably the best recommendation I can make. If you are traveling with non-birders, go somewhere you've been before. I realize that's not always an option for everyone, but I will say it did soothe the birding itch quite a bit. I didn't really feel like I was missing anything by focusing on less bird intensive activities. I was happy to have the birds come to me instead of going to the birds. We did go to a part of the country I'd never been to before though, the Northwest corner around Liberia. Would highly recommend Liberia as a destination. The airport is small and easy and not close to any city. Not that Liberia is even much of a city, but once you're out, you're out and you can get to where you need to go easily. We spent a few days at a hotel in Playa Brazalito. It's gorgeous there. The beaches are phenomenal. And just you know, they're picturesque land and oceanscapes everywhere in that part of the country. And for many of them, you are the only visitor. It's, it's really something. Cool tide pools. The birds I saw there were typical kind of ocean-going species. Uh, pelicans, terns, a handful of sandpipers. Mostly migrants, which were new for Costa Rica for me, which was fun, but you don't necessarily go to the tropics to see American oyster catchers and spotted sandpipers. There were a lot of both there. I would typically wake up around 6 a.m. and walk around for about an hour, hour and a half before meeting up with my family back at wherever we were staying for breakfast and the rest of the day. It worked pretty well. I would recommend that schedule when traveling with non-birders. I saw a good number of birds. I saw a good number of birds even so. Uh, one non-birding but cool nature thing we did was to drive down to Austin All for the sea turtle nesting. You have to get a guide. It's not terribly expensive, about 20 bucks a person. You go out on the beach. After dark, you see the turtles coming ashore. Uh, we were on the leeward end of an arbara, which is the big mass nesting event that occurs down there from time to time. We saw about a dozen turtles, more turtles than I'd ever seen, but evidently a couple days before there were 10 times that, which is amazing to even think about. Uh, we spent the second part of our trip at Volcan Tenorio National Park, a bed and breakfast near the town of Bihagua. Very much recommend this park. Beautiful. The Rio Celeste is a river that has colored this kind of bright teal blue uh, by the volcano, and it is as spectacular as you see in photos. A little wetter there, a little bit of rain, not overly so. Good mountain birding. Probably very, very good if I'd had more time to check it out. The place we stayed at put out bananas. It had a lot of cool birds coming in, including uh, three species of toucans, a couple species of motmots, lots of euphonias, Tennessee warblers too, funnily enough. 
This was the first time, though, that I had encountered the consequences of the 2019 law in Costa Rica that effectively banned bird feeders, which, uh, let me just say, this awful, awful law. Uh, according to one of the guides I talked to, this was undertaken largely because people were feeding monkeys at some of the parks, and those monkeys got more aggressive than is safe. But what this law effectively means on the ground is that there are very, very few fruit feeders at lodges, almost no hummingbird feeders. And I looked because I wanted my family to experience the hummingbirds coming in. We, we couldn't find one. Uh, there's certainly a balance between the costs and benefits of ecotourism for sure. But those feeding stations, man, especially if they are well-designed and maintained, are just an exceptional way for people to get up close to spectacular wildlife, uh, to get enthusiastic about conservation and to have that taken away or in reality significantly minimized is, is terrible. Um, does there need to be guidance and responsibility? Of course, but this is just overkill. And in a country where rainforests are still being replaced with monoculture, pineapples and bananas and whatnot, it feels like a publicity stunt. I, I'll be honest, I love Costa Rica as a nature adventure destination. I love the people, but I don't know, this, this law made me far less enthusiastic about it as a birding specific destination, especially with Panama and Colombia and Honduras and other places out there. Not that my voice has any power, but you know, that. That's just my impression of the state of play right now. I did spend one morning at Caño Negro, which is in the north of the country and is growing as an essential stop on the Costa Rica birding circuit. I went on a boat tour with Experiencia Cano Negro in the National Park itself. Tatiana Guerrero was my guide. Highly, highly recommend the site and the operator. Had 85 odd species in about three and a half hours, including common putu, pygmy kingfisher, black collared hawk. Saw taper tracks, if not actual tapers. Apparently there are jaguars in the area too. It's like a little mini Pantanal. Uh, so many birds, very easy birding, which is great for my non-birding family. Good, good stuff. Fun trip, all in all. Great to be in the tropics. Got a handful of lifers and a boatload of new Costa Rica birds, uh, mostly beach birds and wintering migrants. My, my family had fun, so a complete success. But enough about going south. Let's go north with my friend and Minnesota birder and Victor Emanuel guide Eric Brunke. We talk about birding in the deep freeze and about leading bird tours. All that after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the first part of January 2023. The last couple months have seen at least two records of ivory gull in the middle of the continent. In Saskatchewan, the province's third record of this ghostly Arctic wanderer was seen on the Turtle Lake Christmas bird count in mid-December. The bird was discovered by a non-birder who passed on a photo to a friend, and the rest is history. Early in January, another ivory gull, a different bird, was seen in Houghton County, Michigan in the Upper Peninsula, also the third record for that state. Down to Florida, where a mountain plover in Brevard County is technically speaking the third for the state, but it's been 50 years since the last one, so it feels like a first for most Florida birders. And of note in Ohio... We mentioned that state's first records of common and glaucuswing gulls on either side of the new year in Cuyahoga County. A sladyback gull was discovered among them this week in the same gull flocks, which might be the most diverse in the ABA area right now. Also a third record for the state, funnily enough. It brings up a question I have occasionally considered. Which metro area in the ABA area has the highest diversity of gull species on its checklist? Uh, Cleveland, Ohio is making a run recently, but I have to think that Toronto, Ontario, Chicago, Illinois, and Buffalo, New York, obviously, including Niagara Falls and that, would all have claims to that title. If anyone wants to work that out, I'll give you a mention on the podcast. 
Those are the recent highlights, but for the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash RBA. You can also follow along with all the Rare Bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook and in ABA community. Much of North America is gripped in the depths of deepest winter. It is cold. It is snowy. It is frequently unpleasant. Uh, but for those that push through, the birding can be oh so rewarding, especially in places where the winter hits hardest. I'm joined today by one of those winter diehards, Eric Brunke. If there is a job in birding, Eric has done it. He is currently a tour leader for Victor Emanuel Nature Tours. He's a stalwart at birding festivals, someone I always enjoy catching up with, and uh, a resident of Duluth, Minnesota, to boot, well known for its winter. Eric, thanks for coming on. It's great to see you again. Likewise, Nate. Great to see you too. Yeah, so we we were talking a little bit about the weather currently in in Duluth. What are you what are you looking at right now? Yeah, so outside of my window over here, uh, there there's a lot of freshly fallen snow. Uh, it fell all morning yesterday, all midday, all evening yesterday, and it's it's quite the winter wonderland to say the least. Um, it's also made for some very busy bird feeders too, which is very exciting. Well, you wake up this morning, you look out, it's a beautiful winter day. What are you excited for in the world of birds? Starting off from home, um, you know, just looking at the bird fear scene, what's flying around. I um, actually had a very exciting surprise this morning in particular, like literally about 20 minutes ago. Um, I installed a window feeder uh, okay. uh, right off the end of my bed, basically, in like a bedroom window. And <laughs> for the first time ever, I got to see a pileated woodpecker uh, on the feeder. Like, I kid you not, like a foot how, away. How big, is this, how big is this feeder? Uh, it's like one foot by one foot. Little All right. In the end. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, chickadees are the norm. Pileatids are, are definitely a fun Most treat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So, so what you got your feeder side? I don't like, I, one of the things that I always think about when I'm, when I'm thinking about Northern birding is that, uh, the diversity is not super high, but the quality is quite good. Exactly. So, uh, Northwoods burning in the winter, uh, definitely has a different angle of how, how a burning checklist might be or what one might mm-hmm. expect to see over any time uh, of just going out and exploring the woods around here. Um, one of the special things about this area in particular, like you said, is it's a very unique angle of how bird diversity works and that there's mm-hmm. a lot of northern specialties uh depending on the patch of woods that you're in pine grow speaks evening grow speaks uh both crossbill species can be found and depending on the year red poles as well some years it's fairly quiet with the red poles and some years it's like you can't even keep enough thistle in the feeders for yeah. the red poles <laughs> so it's it's neat to see yeah so if you're if you're leaving your house and uh you know, assuming you're you're willing to get out in that uh, into the cold. Uh, one, you know, what are you sort of looking for? What is your sort of day to day birding uh, outside of your sort of feeding setup? And two, um, how do you prepare for a really what is what is really a sort of a difficult environment? Yeah. So uh, as as far as some of the local bird hunts um, here in the Duluth area, uh, there's there's quite a few park parkland kind of green space areas mm-hmm. that are easily accessible of course there's saxon bog which is yeah, a little so north famous. of town too well yeah. known um but even here in town though there's also the lakefront you know being being like superior that it is and so um a lot of the northern gull species glaucus gull 
Thayer's Iceland, Coomlands, whatever you want to call whatever them. Whatever you want to uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. The beautiful frosty gulls. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're around. Um, so there's some there's some neat experiences to explore here in town. And um, uh, it, it's also very scenic, too. You know, every place has its charm. And one of the neat things about this area, when you go, even even uh, midwinter burning, when diversity is going to be low, but the specialties are going to be around, is the scenery alone is 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 really special. Mm-hmm. And in preparation for that, uh, it's 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 not warm out. It's quite chilly, <laughs> or it could be severely brisk, depending on on your verbiage for the day and generous how much coffee way, you have. Generous way yeah. to put it, yeah. Right, right, right. So again, just put in a plug. You got to start your day off with bird friendly coffee. Yeah, definitely. Get the caffeine going <laughs> and uh, warm you up a little bit. Yeah, cheers. Yeah, and so in uh, in preparation though for for going outside. Uh, the materials that you choose to layer up with make a big difference. Mm-hmm. And whether you're going to be comfortable or whether you'll start off kind of warm and then maybe get the chills later on, uh, wool is kind of a miracle fabric as far mm. as your under layers and maybe some jackets too, but especially the, the layers that are closest to your body um, for, for like the legs, the upper torso and the socks. Uh, just talking on, on those in, in particular, if, um, if you happen to have your closest layers made of cotton, uh, when you're going out for Northwoods birding like this time of year, um, uh, they tend to get a little clammy after a while. So mm. I'm, I'm a big proponent in, in, um, in, in wool apparel um, and then, you know, some proper jackets outside and it'll make for a more comfortable day of being out for part of the day or all day for birding. Yeah, comfort is the big part. You know, if yeah. you're not comfortable, you're no matter how good the birds are, you could have a you know great gray owl sitting ten feet away from you, and you're not going to be having a good time. A bingo, a bingo. <laughs> yeah. You don't want it to be bittersweet. You want it to be enjoyable. So. That's right. That's yeah. right. It, you know, I, I've often found when you're trying to think about just birding clothes and clothes that I take out in the field, be it warm weather stuff or, or cold weather stuff, it's always, you know, sort of worth it to spend that little extra money for something that is a higher quality because it does make such an enormous difference. Um, I've made the mistake of trying to nickel and dime uh, cold weather. I live in the Southeast, so cold is all a relative term, but I, I've right. made the, <laughs> I, you know, I've tried, I've nickeled and dimed and tried to get by with just, you know, the cheaper stuff. And man, once, if you, if you have the money to spend, um, getting that the slightly better quality stuff is boy, it makes a it makes an enormous amount of difference. Right, right. Yeah. Two of the two of the the local brands up here uh, that uh, uh, you know I, I'm kind of partial to being a locally made product, but also mm-hmm, sure. uh, products that really are top of the line for being comfortable outside. Uh, one is called Wintergreen, which is made in Ely, Minnesota, which mm-hmm. is essentially straight north of Duluth uh, towards the Canadian border. And uh, they make a, a wide array of winter jackets, mittens, hats, and um, they are greatly connected with uh, dog sled races. Oh, okay. Um, so they make yeah, you know really intense. nice gear. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then um, uh, for those that are in the in the UP, don't you know? You bet. Uh, <laughs> there, uh, there, there, there's a brand out of Ironwood, Michigan, called Stormy Cromer, and they mm-hmm. make wool hats that are also um, kind of uh, really, really good quality. I'll, I'll you know, made on site too. So it's nice to support the local, local industry, but also knowing that they make really nice stuff that, that makes it enjoyable to be outside this time of year. Yeah. 
Well, you know, it's funny. You, you, we're talking about North and you're Minnesota, which to most of us in, in North, North America is undoubtedly North. But I, I, knew, I do have some Canadian friends and listeners who would undoubtedly say, uh, you know, you Southerner, what are you, what are you talking about? Your winters aren't bad at all. <laughs> it's all relative. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking at you, Jody Allaire in Saskatchewan. <laughs> so um, so you've, if, if you've got a friend coming to visit you, uh, coming to Duluth for birding, where do you take them? What are you looking to show them? Awesome. So, um, there's, so within Northeastern Minnesota, there are an array of, of different places to enjoy, but, um, like I said before, Saxon Bog without a yeah, doubt is one of the, the classic, premier yeah. areas, uh, thanks to the friends of Saxon Bog to the, the nonprofit, um, being as involved as they have been over the years, there's been hundreds of acres of land that have been permanently protected that mm-hmm. will never be, you know, logged, built on, cleared, or, or what have you. Um, there's there's an array of bird feeders throughout the property, and so from a birding standpoint, it uh, this the Saxon Bog in particular really is kind of a it's a winter wonder, excuse me, winter wonderland, but also a birding wonderland too yeah. for accessibility. Yeah, uh, I, you know, I was just going to ask, you know, Saxon Bog on its on the surface, you would think it doesn't look all that different from any other patch of northern Minnesota farmland you know what makes it special it's it's the organization and the people there that have essentially made it into a birding destination oh definitely definitely yeah. and saxon bog many years ago uh got its claim to fame uh from eruptions of owls you know the mm-hmm. great gray owls like you mentioned hawk owls sometimes boreal owls too and so it it, it is a an owling hotspot. Um, but going on with that too, the birding is quite spectacular, you know, during the non-winter months as well mm-hmm. for uh, Connecticut warbler in the summer. I mean, just warblers galore and sparrows yeah. and so much more. And anyway, so going on with that, um, to make birding accessible year round, there's even been several boardwalks throughout this permanently protected wow. plots of land that people can explore on their own um, or or with a guide. And it, it's, it really is uh, just fun and accessible birding that provides a very special angle to to exploring unique habitat that's found around here. Yeah. You take people up there regularly, I assume. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and in the summer and in the winter? <laughs> yeah, it depends. So over the years, I've, I've bounced around a little bit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, during the summertime, too, is, is definitely um, a time of year when I've, I've, I've shown a lot of people around um, you know, for a little day experiences or, mm-hmm. um, you know, with, with, with the vent tours, we always have so much fun too exploring the nooks and crannies that are yeah, up there. Yeah, more time. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. It's, it, it's a wonderful place for sure. Yeah. I had a, I had a friend that went there, um, a few years, maybe about a decade ago and, uh, in, in the middle of February. So like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the coldest part of winter and he came back with like a, a total trip list of, I don't know, maybe like 32, 35 mm-hmm. species for the whole, you know, several days he was there, but like 20 of them were like just really awesome Northern oh. boreal owls and finches and all sorts of really cool stuff. So like the, the, qual- the, the quantity of species is, is not so high, but, but hey, man, the quality, as we said, is so good. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. It's, and that's one of the fun things too, like a lot of birding, you know, every place has its own treasure hunt, I guess you could mm-hmm. say, as far as the yeah. diversity that's possible, how the birds are migrating through and and for this year i think one of the mystiques and absolute beautiful things of being in the environment with these birds is to simply be out in in the bitter cold environment and being like okay so 
these year-round black-capped chickadees and these migratory pine grosbeaks beaks and great gray owls and everything in between, all these birds are out here 24-7 for months at a yeah. time during yeah. you know, the midwinter months. Uh, sometimes it, it's not very common, but you know we might get some nights in particular of 30 or maybe 40 below if it's a right. proper polar vortex that comes through for a short time. And when this happens, it's like these birds don't get, you know, a five minute time of, oh, go inside, warm up. <laughs> right, like, warm up. They, Put your hands in front of the fire, rub them on the. Right, <laughs> right. They're ultimate survivors. And it, it's it's special, but I, I look at it as being um, humbling to be in the presence yeah. of these birds, too, that really are, you know, amazing survivors no of, doubt. of this environment. Oh, the small ones, especially. They eat chickadees. Oh, My God. Like, how many. do they do it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so little. It's incredible. Yeah. yeah. Um, what are some of the best experiences you've had, like a really spectacular experience you had? Uh, insects in bog or someplace nearby. I know you've birded, you know, Minnesota and Wisconsin and the Upper Peninsula of UP. You've been all over up there as well as many other places. But do you have any like really great experiences that stand out to you? Hmm. Well, there's at, at, hard at, to pick one, right? Yeah. <laughs> there's the hard yeah. question. I, I yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, up at Saxon Bog in particular, uh, there was one moment years ago. When uh, it was actually during a, a summer visit, um, mm-hmm. um, I, I had uh, located Connecticut warbler just out scouting, burning on my own, enjoying the, the landscape without much of a time time you know sense for the day. Mm-hmm. And while I was watching uh, uh, Connecticut warblers flitting through the woods, uh, doing a little bushwhacking in the area where you, where you can go off off road, um, I heard this little um, uh, sh- 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 this little little begging sound basically of, of of a large owl and i look over and um having baby great gray owls in view while within singing and viewing range of connecticut warbler is like i don't quite know what's going on but it's that's just right. that's it's a heck of like, a uh, checklist do i cry yeah. do i smile what, what happens here <laughs> that's pretty good yeah, yeah. That, it's amazing to have like the 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 tentpole species of uh saxon winter and the tentpole species of saxon summer like right there right next to each other yeah, same yeah. Moment. <laughs> yeah. One other thing, I just have to say too. Um, so, uh, like a lot of us, you know, we we take uh, just pleasure and pride in doing Christmas bird counts throughout oh, yeah, yeah. throughout the year. And uh, this is last, not not this previous Christmas bird count, you know, a few days ago, but talking last full year. Um, uh, I, I remember um, uh, basically arriving in Duluth towards the end of the year and long and the short of it inquired about the Christmas bird count on the late side. And mm-hmm. anyways, talked with my friend, Frank Nicoletti, who was coordinating it. And he's like, well, we've, we've never had anyone or we haven't had anyone, um, you know, spending time up at Hawk Ridge Overlook, which is this magnificent hawk mm-hmm. migration site, uh, yeah. primarily in the fall. Another, another fantastic place. I've been oh, yeah, we'll yeah. talk about that too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so basically all day long, most people during Christmas bird council go in vehicles, they'll carpool, you know, just uh, just a joyous time together mm-hmm. and basically what i did on my own is i as I, I trekked to the main overlook of hawk ridge and just stood out there from sunrise through closing time throughout the day and tallied all the migration of raptors that was still going through as well as other morning wow even in late too. december yeah and it was it was winds were blowing off the lake it was a proper cold <laughs> late <Yeah>. december day <laughs> and um i'll never forget this too there was um had rough-legged hawks, bald eagles flying through, pine grosbeaks beaks flying by. I mean, it was proper migration still happening into yeah. the latter chunk of December. It was really special to experience this, you know, like migration phenomenon to some extent does occur year-round too when you really mm-hmm. think about, you know, late season, early season birds and whatever. But it was a really special treat to freeze my buns off that that, that day <laughs> and bundle up as best I could 
Because you're not yeah. moving around, you're standing in place all day. Right, long. that makes it worse. Yeah, and you're in a high, you know, overlook. You know, oh, the wind. Yeah. There's nothing to stop the wind. It's, oh, it's yeah. coming and, straight and, at you. And, yeah, and and all in all, it, it was a it was a very memorable, magical day for sure. Yeah, that's that's wild. That migration is still happening that late. I guess we think about migration of like waterfowl. You know, sometimes you know it's late January, early February by the time those birds get to where they're they're going, so to speak, yeah. uh, in the winter. Fall migration is the best. It's, I mean, it lasts like eight months. So, <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> fall falls falls very loosely used in that term, right? Um, so, you know, you've worked for Victor Emanuel Nature Tours for for quite a while now. You know, one of the best known tour companies, certainly in North America, maybe maybe the world. Um, how do you get into that sort of work, and what are the kind of people that you meet in that industry? Yeah. So when uh, this is, I want to say about nine years ago now, I, I received a phone call uh, from the vent office, mm-hmm. um, uh, basically just just saying hello, showing some interest in, 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 um, um, in, in inquiring about new guides for the company. Mm-hmm. And um, um, at that point, too, and, 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 through, and over the years, I, I, I do a little like side day trip business as right. well. And yeah. basically through connections of being at birding festivals and yeah. just performance in the field, doing my own little gig. It was just through a referral of how that worked. Mm-hmm. But, but or, and I, I do feel that a lot of um, uh, guiding opportunities do come from word of mouth as far yeah. as, um, you know, uh, when a company might be looking for or new new folks uh, to fill certain roles, or if they're looking to expand, um, that's that's definitely the, the the big in uh, just kind of lucky timing and and, yeah, and yeah. highlighting though. Once again, it's all about connections. You know, with mm-hmm. a lot of these um, professional connections and how things fall into place like that. Yeah, so. it, does it help to be like you? You you live in Duluth, Minnesota. You you mm-hmm. know that part of the world really really well. Does it help to be kind of a I guess sort of a ringer for that? area like you could lead a tour in this area in your sleep and then once you've kind of established that you know you're you're doing a nice job there then you can kind of branch out into other parts of the world other parts of the country that maybe you don't know as well and you're kind of given the opportunity to to develop those skills in those places right right yeah there's there's several ways of looking at how how um how a skill set works with guiding you know whether yeah. it's like yeah locally focus on an area like like you said for me it just happens to be northern minnesota where you mm-hmm. know i went to college not far from here and a lot of my earlier years were in this area um uh, but also going on with that too and i know that there's a lot of listeners out there that can attest to this is uh whether it's it's college or post-college or that relative time frame or maybe even later in life mm-hmm. um hopping around to different bird field jobs is yeah is invaluable you know like a lot of us we've we've um you've you've been in the elements of many sorts uh, documenting birds by sight, by sound, being involved mm-hmm. with different, it, it could be vegetation surveys that yeah. immerses you in different birds too. And I feel like, um, from just earlier experiences, when you, when you put yourself in, in, uh, employment experiences that have you out in the boonies or being yeah. involved, or, or it, it could be things like citizen science, you know, being involved with eBird maybe on a very regular basis and, and participating in that too. Uh, all of the past, field experiences and, and burning experiences really do build to create this, this, this background that, um, that, that, that can make a, a, a tour guide well-rounded. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
So, so what do you think of the characteristics a person really needs to be an effective nature tour guide, bird tour guide? Ooh, so there, there's, there's different things. Uh, when, when doing the job in the field, mm-hmm. there is a lot of, or th- there is some birding involved, let's say. There's yeah, some, some birding, birding involved. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's knowing, part of the job is, is, of course, knowing the birds by sight and sound, as that is your, I guess, you could, I guess you could say it might be your your target, you know, and that that's the mm-hmm. objective is to show people and and have people experience um, this this magical world of how birds work, mm-hmm. especially in that area wherever the tour happens to be. Um, but also, it's it's critically important to be a, a person that uh, is apt to be a people person, and yeah. you know, taking care of of other people's needs as far yeah. as um, uh, you know, some people might be a little, um, uh, some people might have poor vision or mm-hmm. might be a little hard of hearing and there's ways to help, help a group of folks, um, of all, of all backgrounds and abilities to get on birds when it's happening in the moment. Um, yeah. also with that being said, one of the things that pretty much all tour guides have gone through or like long going tour guides have gone through from, um, from learning experiences is the ability to point birds out among a landscape. Yeah, um, that's that that takes practice. That takes a lot of reps to be to be good at that. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it does. And sometimes it might be from a vehicle. So you mm-hmm. might use the clock system, you know, right, twelve right. o'clock in front, three o'clock and so on. Um, but also while in the field, um, when you do it enough, um, it does become like second nature, regardless mm-hmm. of how thorny and thicket like or how open canopy or maybe even desert like however the environment is there are ways to point birds out effectively and quickly so that a group can get on them but yeah. that is one thing um just <laughs> talking about specifics of guiding i think that um is, is a learned trait is the ability to point birds out to a group of folks effectively and efficiently yeah yeah I've, I've, you know my experience is far more limited than yours but i've always found that yeah the people person thing is definitely a big part like willingness to help people find birds and uh you know enthusiasm for the stuff you see rather than disappointment for the stuff that you don't see you know people kind of read off that you can see a lot of really common birds and still have a fantastic experience in the field even if you miss your so-called you know target bird or the one that you're sitting setting out to see I always tell the people who are, you know, trying to get started, like guiding field trips for like Audubon societies or bird clubs or stuff like that. People are always very hesitant to kind of jump into that because they feel like they have to be like a super expert birder. And like that comes. The most important thing is being, knowing where the bathrooms are and and having fun. That's like, that's like the main part. And people figure out the rest kind of comes as, as you do it more, more often. Yeah. Well said. And yeah. going on with that, Nate, too, I, um, uh, one of my um, kind of long-going dearest friends and, and personal mentors, Laura Erickson, who lives mm-hmm. here in town. Another Duluth birder. Yeah. 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 She's, she's been um, kind of, uh, you might call her my birding mom, I guess, for, yeah. for, for many years. <laughs> and um, one of the things that I really took to heart when I first met her and from listening to her podcast over the years, mm-hmm. listening to her on the radio station back you know, back in my middle school and high school days, um, but also from reading her various writings yeah. um, over the years is she she's an amazing sharer of really fascinating bird knowledge. Yes. Yeah. And I feel like going on with what you said about having fun and providing a well-rounded experience while having fun, you know, mm-hmm. with leading trips is, is knowing stories 
about yeah. birds and knowing totally life history and cool facts. It doesn't, I mean, it definitely sh- doesn't be and shouldn't be, you know, a million things about each bird. But if, if you, but if you're looking to get into guiding or, or, and, or if you're looking to, uh, to help out maybe on the side with some local walks, Audubon groups and what have you um, in, in your area, um, knowing a few fun little side bits about the various species that you come yes. across um, brings so much joy and it, and it really enriches the experience that your participants are going to be experiencing while they're under your wing, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. What is your favorite weird bird fact? Mm. I know, it's hard to pick just one. Which one, yeah. <laughs> All right, yeah. Yeah, well, when um, when we're looking at uh, great gray owls up here, it, it's uh, it's kind of on a whim, but, you know, talking about how they are gentle giants, like a lot of people mm-hmm. perceive great gray owls as being this, this very dense, uh, you know, heavy or heavily built bird. And, um, you know, when talking about great gray owls, how they can plunge through snow without actually seeing their prey, you know, through, through the offset ears, through triangulation. And, um, you know, the, the uh, books, um, depending on the source that you're looking at, great gray owls may weigh around two pounds, maybe a little more, two and a half pounds, somewhere around there, I believe. Yeah. Um, but for as, as massive as they are, you know, dimension wise, they're actually light and fluffy. And I call them gentle giants for that reason yeah. too. Of oh, totally. When yeah. they go after small voles, mice, things like that. So have you ever seen the, have you ever seen the, like, and this is sort of off uh, a tangent, but it's about great gray owls, so maybe not so much of a tangent, but there was this uh, video that was going around, maybe on YouTube, I forget, I, I saw it several years ago about um, people who are banding great gray owls, and it was probably in Sex and Bob, they were, hmm. Sex and Bog, they were catching them and, you know, putting bands on them so they could follow them around and stuff, and and uh, one, of the th- one of the tools that they did uh, when they captured one to calm it, because you kind of have to cover the eyes and it calms the bird down, was like a red solo cup. And they took the red solo cup and they put it on top. And, you know, the great gray owl's head is like this big round thing, but it's all feathers. And the red solo cup just fit directly on top of the first. So you had these big gray, gray, gray owls with like a little red solo cup on top of their heads while oh, they crazy. did the work. And then they took it off and the bird flew off. It's pretty wild. Oh. It was just a really weird <laughs> uh, proportioned animal. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so there, there's, there's another one. There's a fact. But yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, it, I, I was going to say, share my, I don't know if you have heard the story about, um, you know, how chimney swifts were like, they're where the, how their wintering grounds were discovered in like the 1920s. Have you heard, ever heard that story? No. All no. right. So this, the, I'll, I'll tell you. So essentially there was this uh, researcher in um, Tennessee, I think, who was um, trying to figure out where chimney swifts went in the winter because they, they didn't know. Um, and so he put all these little bird bands on, he captured a bunch of them that were, you know, uh, collecting in the fall at a in a you know a, a chimney like they do on the campus of like ut knoxville or something and he put a bunch of little bands on him in the hopes that maybe they might be found again somewhere down the road and and so the birds flew off and he, he never found them and they never really recovered a lot of the bands until these um missionaries were down in peru i think it was peru or ecuador um and so they were in this like really um isolated community of indigenous people in the area and they came across them and they were wearing necklaces that had the little silver bands of the chimney swifts from you know. Tennessee. No. And so um, apparently well, the chimney swifts would go down and they would like roost in uh, big hollow rainforest trees. And um, the indigenous people would like smoke the trees and get the birds and collect the birds for, for food. Yeah. Um, and they found these little silver bands on them and they turned them into jewelry. And that's how oh. we found out that the chimney swifts were going to the to Amazon. Yeah. That is 
Isn't that cool? And fascinating. I love and, that story. Wow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, we can, we can tell stories about weird bird stuff all, all day long. Oh, oh that's, all that's day long. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, we've been talking about, um, we've been talking about how you are a, a child of the, of the Northern Minnesota and the, and that area. But Eric, I have to tell you, I looked at your vent tour and you're going to like Panama next week. Um, so how can you really be, uh, uh, Minnesotan when you're, when you're decamping for, uh, the tropics? I'm just gonna say, I'm just saying. Yeah. Just the yeah, so, questions. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I have to ad- admit that um uh, one of the most challenging flights to make first of all is going to Panama middle of winter here cuz you know to go to the airport you got to la- I mean you still want to layer up a little bit where some Oh yeah, no out. doubt. It's dark yeah. and cold. And then you get to Panama, it could be 80, 90 80 degrees, degrees or whatever. <laughs> yeah. As soon as <laughs> so they open that, the doors on that plane, you're like, oh, this is too much. This yeah. Too much yeah. I'm, I'm so, and thanks for, thanks for asking too. I'm so stoked to be back. Um, uh, and yeah. um, speaking of camping, yeah. So Canopy Lodge mm-hmm. and Canopy Camp are the two tours that I do every January uh, mm-hmm. through the Canopy family. Yeah. That many of us are, yeah. are familiar with um, beautiful organization that has just extraordinary guides. You know, their, their, their love and passion for conservation is, you know, is is top tier too and anyway so in preparation for those tours over the years um i download merlin mm-hmm. um you know to study both the visual and the yeah. audio sense of, of what the different birds look like and sound like um but also one thing that i did years ago uh back when victor said eric uh we're looking to maybe uh, uh send you to some of your dream places like Panama. <laughs> and now Brazil too, like places like that. Um, And um, in preparation for for these farther reaching places, what I've done, I'm actually got this idea from uh, from my coworker, Barry Zimmer, Mm -hmm. um, who's a long going, you know, bird expert and vent leader, um, is uh, he he mentioned, you know, making bird flashcards. And Mm. by doing the bird flashcards, you're able to flip through um, all of them, you're able to flip through the easy ones, maybe put those aside, flip through the the, the more challenging ones personally, yeah. as far as how learning goes. And anyway, yeah. so, um, so what I do when the time has come years ago to, to focus and study on these new places that I'm going to be visiting and leading tours in is I essentially buy two field guides per place. Um, mm-hmm. one, unfortunately is sacrificed to the making of <laughs> no cards <laughs> and, uh, it, it takes a little while to make, but this is actually a good, good practice too, for anyone who is, you know, um, maybe learning the birds of your area by a, mm-hmm. by a much smaller field guide, maybe a local field guide, and um, and basically snip out the birds that are possible, likely, unlikely, even rare, but make a full spectrum uh, stack of um, uh, flashcards, bird picture on one, name of the bird on the other. And you can also write notes on, you know, key things about that species, you know, um, as far as the plumage goes and things mm-hmm. like that. And that's one of the biggest things that I found helped o- over the years was after making these um Making of no cards is it's it's kind of like teaching, you know. Like some people say, yeah. one of the best ways to 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 teach is, or like like one of the best ways to learn is to teach. Yeah, and similar thing yeah. goes through when you make no cards. Anyway, yeah. so that, that's that's what I've been doing in preparation for these. That's nice. That reminds yeah. me of the way I learned like the Krebs cycle in the college <laughs> chemistry. <laughs> I, I still didn't really learn it, but yeah, yeah the, the practice is the same. <laughs> that's that's a really good uh, way. Like, I was going to say, how long does it take you to feel comfortable in those sort of new places? Like it's it's one thing to go down there and bird on your own. It's another thing to go down there and be responsible for another person's good experience in those places. Like you sort of feel like you need to have a base knowledge of the birds that you're going to encounter how long does it take you to feel comfortable in those places 
Uh, usually the note cards, when the time came years ago to, or like knowing that I was going to be leading Panama uh, mm-hmm. tours, um, I started about a year in advance Yeah, as far as just, um, just, you know, making note cards, having ample time to study. And, and as the years go on, you know, like, like, like all of us, as far as how proficient we are with identifying birds, uh, with confidence, you know, knowing the, this is the whole flow of birding. Um, you know, it, it's more of re- review time before mm-hmm. the tour versus long-term studying. But um, I, I would definitely say that with Brazil too, in particular, you know, it's a whole different ballgame that I've yeah, ever been yeah, to no doubt. up until last year. About uh, a, a proper year in advance is, is usually what I kind of gauge myself. And, yeah. and then before each tour too, uh, because I haven't been to these places before when the formal tour is happening, uh, Victor uh, uh, um, flies his guides down to do some scouting before. And so, mm-hmm. uh, so we know not just the birds, like from a personal experience, but also um, it, it's um, it's it's some very invaluable time to learn, you know, the the trails, the, the, yeah. the plants, the flowers, butterflies, the full spectrum and, and important gamut of nature there, birding or birds and beyond. Um, yeah. It's always important to experience those places beforehand, too. So yeah, no doubt. That, that kind of follows uh, months and months and months of studying note cards. So Yeah, it must yeah. be very satisfying to finally get down there and put all that practice into put all that study into practice, I should say. Definitely, definitely. It's something yeah. to take pride in for sure. Yeah, yeah no doubt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Eric Brunke is uh, with Victor Emanuel Nature Tours and so many other things. You can probably find him at every bird festival in, uh, in North America. So please go and say hello to him. Talk about northern birding. Talk about Panama or Brazil or wherever he's been. Uh, Eric, it's so nice to see you again. I can't wait to run into you again. Probably, probably a biggest week. And uh, then we'll, we'll pick this up again there. <laughs> Looking forward to it, Nate. And so nice to see you too. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. We are a membership organization, and the best way to help support this podcast is to join the ABA as a member. You get a lot of great things, including our magazines, discounts to our partners, and opportunities to travel with us. You can get more information on joining the ABA at aba.org slash join. Special shout outs this week to Jeremiah Nichols of Carl Junction, Missouri, Dan Ray of Middle Amana, Iowa, Rebecca Moore of Petoskey, Michigan, Riley Davids and family of Peoria, Arizona, Adam Duchek of Scotts Valley, California, Stephanie Cullerton of Warrenville, Illinois, Amy and Scott Borchart of Lake George, Colorado, Seraphim Mary Gondek of Ottawa, Ontario, Jane Johnson of Lexington, Kentucky, Kimberly Osmondson of Richmond, Virginia, Maya Engel of Beaverton, Oregon, David Toth of Brunswick, Ohio, John Malarchik and family of Sailorsville, Pennsylvania, Lars Haar of Flagstaff, Arizona, and Philip Scarborough of Rockland, California, all of whom recently joined the ABA. A lot of people. All of you recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as the reason for doing so. Thank you so much for your support and welcome to the ABA. Executive Director of the ABA and Executive Producer of the podcast is Nikki Belmonte, who who has made quick trips to Sex and Bog five times and is looking forward to one more, her six Sex and Bog jogs. Technical production is by John Lowry, who loves winter clothing for dog sledders, which he refers to as good enough for six sex and bog jog dogs. Additional help with social media comes from George Munoz, who is a dog trainer himself, finds that dog sled braids are great fun for playing fetch, where he will stick six sex and bog jog dogs. You can find us online at ABA.org and on social media most everywhere as American Birding Association, but on Twitter, we are at ABAI. However, do not have a dog sled dog. I have a a small breed. So the stick George uses to my pet is a stick six sack gem bog jog dog log. Questions, comments, come to podcast at aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. See you next week.